If you'd turn with me in your copies of God's Word, uh, we take up as our text this evening the fifth chapter of the Epistle of the Galatians. It's Galatians 5. We'll commence our reading there at verse 1. That's Galatians 5, starting at the first verse. The Holy Word of the Living God. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. He did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord that ye will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off which trouble you. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. And may he bless it to our hearing richly this evening. Beloved, as we look at this text, if I could remind you of something that I I said uh, now months ago when we first took up the first chapter. This epistle is deeply personal. I suppose that's an observation that anybody could make. Obviously, the apostle is writing against individuals who were preaching false doctrine in Galatia. But when I say personal, of course, I'm not speaking of the apostle and the Judaizers. The apostle begins in the very first chapter to situate the entire controversy in Galatia as a controversy between the legal spirit and God. It is a personal Controversy, not some abstract, arid theological discussion. It is nothing less than a dispute between the human inclination to the covenant of works and the living God who's revealed himself through his son. As we approach the fifth chapter, that certainly rings true. And we'll see that in these 12 verses we take up this evening. But in order for us to understand the text in front of us, let me remind you just for a moment what we've had, what we've already seen rather at the end of chapter four. The apostle in the fourth chapter, remember, sets before us something of an illustration. You have the legal inclination, the legal spirit set before us in the similitude of Hagar, Sinai, and earthly Jerusalem. And that is set in an opposition to the gracious economy that is, to the covenant of grace, Sarah, and heavenly Jerusalem. And these two beget children. 
the legal child is Ishmael, as the child who comes from the legal economy and the legal spirit. Isaac, of course, is instead the child of providence, promise. He is the one that comes from the gracious economy. And what this illustration has done for us is it has shown to us very clearly that there is a stark divide between slavery and persecution on the one hand and freedom in Christ and a gracious disposition on the other. That was the point of the illustration. As you remember, the apostle in the earlier sections of chapter 4 has already come to the church in Galatia and reminded them that he preached a gospel of free grace that brought freedom. And in response to that, their disposition was gracious. They were inclined charitably toward the apostle. But when the legal preachers came, they, like Ishmael before, became persecutors of the one who was truly of promise. That's the illustration. Beloved, as we come to the fifth chapter in the first verse, you and I are confronted with very similar themes. You and I encounter an exhortation, first of all. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Now, beloved, as we look at this text, and really the entirety of the fifth chapter, really you and I are supposed to see that this opening exhortation ties us to the illustration that we've just reviewed. The apostle, in verses 1 to 12 of this fifth chapter, is going to show us the liberty the liberty that was illustrated in that, in that last several verses of chapter 4. And then when you come to verses 13 to 26 of our text, that's the fifth chapter, you'll notice that he changes his focus to address the issue of charity. If you look just briefly at verse 15 of chapter 5, he raises the issue. If ye bite and devour one another, etc., etc., The apostle in the first 12 verses then of chapter 5 is going to show us more clearly what the illustration had already given to us with regard to our liberty in Christ. And verses 13 to the end of this fifth chapter is going to show us really what is the character of those who are the children of promise. What is that gracious disposition that is wrought by a work of grace? Now friend, our focus this evening is just on that first section. Verses 1 to 12, where the apostle really explicates for us the liberty that was in view in those previous verses. In verse 1, you have the exhortation to stand fast in that freedom. In verses 2 to 4, you have what you could call a dehortation. It's the apostle urging them negatively not to give in to those legal inclinations. Verses 5 and 6, he explains himself in terms of the sufficiency of Christ. Their bondage is answered sufficiently in the Lord Jesus. And then verses 7 to 12, he closes with a very direct rebuke to the Judaizers. Now, friend, that really is the 12 verses we're taking up this evening in summary. But I want us to direct our attention, first of all, at what really the apostle highlights time and again in these verses. And that is the issue, of course, of circumcision. Now, beloved, as you look at these verses, it's important to keep in front of you what circumcision is especially in this controversy. Circumcision is not merely an external rite. You remember that circumcision really functions synecdochially. It functions as a, representative, as a representative of a whole body of duties. And you see that in Acts 15. 
There was a certain sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. In other words, friend, the Judaizers were teaching that circumcision represented the whole body of the law, and so when they said this was necessary to be done in order to have a warrant to take hold of Christ, they were saying genuinely that once they were circumcised, they were bound to do all that the law required before they could take Christ's offers of grace. So even though the apostle is highlighting circumcision, we are supposed to understand that circumcision is really the entry point to a whole body of duties. Friend, I want you to notice how the apostle himself explains that to us in the text. He says, those who are circumcised are debtors to do the whole law. A friend, before we go any further, it's important for me to remind you that circumcision in the old covenant economy was a sacrament, a gracious sacrament. It was supposed to remind the people of God that, that they were bound to him through this gracious covenant made through the mediator of that covenant and that they would be his people. He would be their God in an act of free grace. So what then does the apostle mean when he says, if they are circumcised, they are debtors to do the whole law? If it's a gracious sacrament, the apostle's words here seem to be dissonant. Well, friend, here you have for us a stark reminder that's so very crucial. Here the apostle reminds us that a sacrament made in a covenant of grace can be made a legal sacrament if it's not improved by faith. In other words, friend, what the apostle is saying here is if they will not take Christ, that sacrament is nothing less than a sign and seal of the covenant of works. And friend, just as a pastor, as your own minister, what he says of circumcision can be said of baptism. There are many who have the sign of grace applied to them, but because they do not improve it by faith, it is a sign and seal of a legal covenant a sign of their own condemnation. The apostle says this is precisely what that has become for these Judaizers. But he sets that starkly in contrast with the liberty that the apostle himself enjoys and would urge the Galatian believers to hold fast to. In short form, what is that liberty? I'll just quote to you from Romans 8 and the second verse, but of course we'll spend more time on that this evening. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. This is that freedom in short form that the apostle here is insisting that the churches in Galatia hold fast to, that the Judaizers would bring them back into bondage from. And so if we are looking at this text appropriately, friend, I think we are supposed to understand that the apostle is dealing here not just with the, the, the old covenant ceremonies being discontinued in the new covenant. Of course, that's there. But principally, as we've seen in the third, fourth, and now this present chapter, the apostle is dealing with the root of the matter. And that is legal inclinations. He's dealing with those who have a penchant for the covenant of works who have a desire, in other words, to have some meritorious righteousness to stand alongside the work of Jesus Christ in the matter of their justification. And so what does this text teach us in light of that? Well, it teaches us that legal inclinations would drive souls from Christian liberty. 
These legal inclinations would drive souls from Christian liberty. And I want us to see briefly this evening, friend, the three ways in which the Apostle shows this to us. And I'll say by way of disclaimer this evening, because the Apostle has already given these themes to us through illustration, much of what we're going to say tonight, we've heard, and not only just in the fourth chapter, but really we've heard many of these themes in the third and the second as well. But here the Apostle reiterates these these points by way of exhortation. And so we'll review them again nonetheless. In the first verse, you have the apostles setting before us these legal inclinations as they would be incorrigible to the gospel. In verses 2 and 4, you have an inherent, an inherent division between the gospel of grace and the legal spirit. And finally, you have an inevitable division between those who have a gracious disposition and those who are inclined to the covenant of works. So take, first of all, if you like, the incorrigibleness that you see in this text. It doesn't necessarily come out to us immediately, especially as we're looking just briefly at our own translations. In our translations, it simply says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Syntactically, reading that in the original, you could translate that first line this way. He says, For freedom... Christ hath made us free. For freedom, Christ hath made us free. Now why is that important? And why is that translation significant? Well, friend, I want you to notice here that there is a kind of emphatic tone that you and I are to detect immediately. The apostle here is setting before us the idea that there is an intentionality. If you like, there is a purpose, a goal that was always designed for this Christian freedom that the Galatians are to hold on to. And what's so striking about this text, friend, and it's, it's one of the most precious elements, I think, of the entire epistle. What the apostle is saying here is, is that the freedom of the Galatians was the very inclination, the very desire of Christ in the accomplishment of redemption. Now the apostle is not contradicting that the work of redemption was ultimately for the glory of God. He's not contradicting the fact that this was of course for the redemption and renovation of souls. But what he is saying here very pointedly is, and by way of emphasis, Christ really desired and aimed at their liberty. Christ counted their freedom precious when he went to accomplish their redemption. It was not an afterthought, says the Apostle. It was for freedom, as though that were an end in itself. It was for freedom that Christ hath made us free. And therefore, says the Apostle, stand fast in it. If it was so precious to Christ, how could you let it go? That's the idea. Friend, what you have here then, is a stark reminder, a personal reminder that this legal inclination that the apostle here is abrading is contrary to the love of Christ. That love that Christ bears for his own. Friend, what we have to keep in front of us here is that as the apostle reminds us in our own text, the whole scriptures teach to us that the liberty of his people was a great desire upon the part of Christ. I could just remind you what you have in Psalm 40, where the Lord tells us, as he contemplates the work of redemption, he says, I delight to do thy will. 
We had no coerced Christ. We had no Christ whose arm was twisted. Yes, it was the Father's will. And yes, in the councils of eternity, it was decreed that He would come and accomplish all that was necessary for His people's salvation. But He went willingly and, He says here, with delight. To do His Father's work to accomplish redemption. And what bearing does that have on our liberty? Psalm 68.18 reminds us, Thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led captivity captive, thou hast received gifts for men, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. In other words, beloved, what the psalmist tells us there and what the apostle uses this verse for in Ephesians 4 is to argue that Christ had a real desire to liberate the captive. Even the rebellious, says the psalmist, Christ had a desire to see them in freedom. And friend, as we think about what all of that freedom entails, as we just read briefly through the Gospels, we see that very desire manifest. Just for instance, because this liberty consists in life, Note what Christ says. He says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. He says, in other words, that his disposition is such that not only would they have life, but they would have more of it. Christ, as he does his Father's will delightfully, says this is part of that work that he's committed to, that he's inclined to. This liberty also consists in that spirit of adoption, and in that joy. And allow me just to remind you what we read from John 17. Christ prays as he looks and even now feels in a new way the pains of the second death. He says this, that they, he prays, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Even while Christ is looking at nothing less than the yawning gates of hell, as the very pains of the second death will be poured into his soul, as body and soul will be made a sacrifice unto God, he prays in earnest that they would know joy. We can go further. Christ prays because, of course, this liberty consists in the breaking of the dominion of sin. He prays for their sanctification. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Again, notwithstanding all of those things that that would be dogging the human mind and soul of our Savior, His focus is on the sanctification of His own. And then, beloved, can we... I wonder, can we read with dry eyes what you have at verse 24 of that text? Where Christ says these words, He says, Father, I will that they also whom Thou hast given me be with me where I am they may behold my glory. Beloved, Christian liberty also consists of that freedom from the curse of the law that enables us to walk into glory. And here Christ says it is his will. It is his great disposition that they would have it. For freedom, Christ hath made us free. Beloved, have you thought for a moment that it was actually Christ's joy, as the, apostle, as the prophet says in Isaiah 53, the satisfaction of his soul, that his people would be free. 
The Apostle says that's a solid argument for why we ought not to give in to these legal inclinations. To give you an analogy, a simple one, beloved, it's the husband's desire. It ought to be the husband's desire that, that his wife is, is joyful and, and feels free in her calling. And that's precisely what the scriptures hold out to us, that it was Christ's desire that his bride would walk in joy and walk in freedom. But when those legal dispositions take over, friend, it's as though, as though the bride is selling that freedom. Casting that back, as it were, into his face, though it cost him dearly. Friend, the observation and application to this point is simple, isn't it? The Apostle will remind the Galatians that if they have a harsh view of Christ, if their views of Christ are servile, well, friend, it's not the Christ of Scripture that they're contemplating. For freedom this Christ hath made them free. As though that were an end in itself. He desired it so. Beloved, those servile inclinations, when we are driven to duty at the end of a rod instead of by love, understand that is the legal inclination in you and in me. Here the apostle would remind us it was Christ's desire that his people would walk freely. So how could they give those things over? But very briefly, as we come to our second and our third points, friend, the apostle reviews for us what all of that that entails. In verse 2, he reminds us, reminds them that if they are circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Again, verse 4, Christ has become of no effect to you. Ye are fallen from grace. Now, the apostle is saying here very pointedly that if your teaching circumcision is necessary, If you're saying circumcision is necessary because Christ lacks something, then obviously then Christ is insufficient. And if he is insufficient on his own, then friend, surely he is unnecessary. If circumcision offers anything meritorious to make up, as it were, whatever is lacking in Christ, then Christ is an insufficient Savior. And therefore... Therefore, Christ will profit you nothing, says the Apostle. There is no point. And the Apostle in verse 5 then pits that against, against, of course, his own disposition to hold to the gospel of free grace. He says, we through the Spirit wait for the hope of the righteousness by faith. In other words, he's saying we expect righteousness and heavenly reward that comes from that righteousness by a Spirit-wrought faith. That's the difference. The Apostle says, you are entrusting yourself to a ceremony and to a whole host of ceremonies. But we, we are resting upon Christ only. And only through him do we expect any glory. And beloved, I just remind you that the Apostle has already given this to us time and again through this epistle. He's teaching us clearly that there can be no mixture There can be no mixing between the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. There can be no man holding to to some kind of merit from his own works and the merit of Christ. These two are antinomous. They cannot be combined. And, beloved, I won't elaborate any further because the apostle throughout the entire epistle has shown us to that 
shown that to us time and again. It's the main theme, if you like, of this epistle. And so, friend, the question that comes from this point is just, do we then make conscience of self-righteousness? Do we make conscience of those legal dispositions in you and in me where we would credit far more to our acts of obedience than we ought to? When we don't meditate on how deeply we stand in need, absolute need, for the Lord Jesus Christ to stand before the Father? Do we make conscience and, and do we do so even reminding ourselves of what the Apostle himself has said? If we give in to those legal inclinations, it is, as, it is as though Christ is dead in vain. Our disposition is such, says the Apostle, that we would cast aspersions on the work of Christ if we give in to these things. It's nothing less for the Apostle than blasphemy. The third and our final point this evening It comes from the rebukes that are tendered to the Judaizers in the last portion of our text. The apostle teaches us here that those who would give in, give in to these legalists, they will inevitably be driven from Christ. To the Galatians, he asked them a simple question, who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? And then to those who were the legal preachers, he says, they shall bear his judgment. And then he even, in a very graphic way, he says, I would that they were even cut off. The idea in that last, in that last quotation, friend, is the very self-same sentiment that's expressed in 1 Corinthians 14. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha, forever accursed. The apostle is saying pointedly that for all of their supposed piety, for all of their great professions to Christ, these ones would drive the Galatians from him and will themselves perish without him. And friend, again, this is a theme that we've already encountered. We've already encountered the futility of the legalists. But just can I remind you for a moment what the apostle says on this point in the epistle to the Romans. He says, Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. In other words, the apostle is reminding them they are still enslaved. Notwithstanding all of their external accoutrements, notwithstanding the veneer of godliness that they have, they are still in bondage, still under the curse. And the illustration that comes to us comes to us actually from our text. If you go back to the illustration in chapter 4, you'll remember that Hagar and Sarah are raised for us as one, the epitome of slavery, and the other, the epitome of freedom. Well, friend, can I just remind you what that looks like? If you were to go back to Genesis 21, you'll remember that, that after Ishmael had grown up and after Hagar had, had, as it were, gained greater ascendancy in the home than Sarah herself, and, and their crisis in the home ensues, and, and Sarah goes to Abraham and petitions Abraham to remove Isaac and ha- sorry Ishmael and Hagar from the home. Do you remember how he, how Abraham refers to Hagar? Notwithstanding, notwithstanding the apparent blessedness that Hagar enjoyed, 
Notwithstanding all the privileges she might have known, he calls her thy bondwoman. Her condition might have changed externally, but she was still in status a slave. And for those who are legalists, says the apostle, they are still with Hagar. Notwithstanding their professions, notwithstanding their apparent piety, they are Hagar still. Now, friend, as we close briefly, the question that comes to us from these 12 verses is a basic one. Is, is this freedom, is this freedom that Christ has purchased precious to us? That's how the apostle begins this section. And there are two questions that really flow from that. What does it mean for you to be freed from the curse? Do you obey like a slave? Friend, when you go about religious duties, is it at the end of a rod? Or is it the filial disposition, that loving disposition that draws you to it? The second question is, beloved, do you rejoice in your freedom from the dominion of sin? That too is Christian liberty. And that brings us actually to what you have in verse 6. It's striking in the sixth verse there, the apostle tells us, really anticipating what he's going to argue in the latter section of this chapter. He says, it is faith which worketh by love. Now friend, if I can take you back just for a moment to the illustration of chapter 4. Why would a slave do any work? Well, friend, typically it was because the slave feared the whip. But why would a free woman like Sarah, why would she so dutifully serve Abraham? Surely it's a principle of love. And that's also a distinction, beloved, between the legalist and the Christian. What is it that induces the soul to turn away from sin? Yes, sometimes the Lord will use the rod. Hebrews 12 is clear. But the apostle says when the Christian is functioning rightly, it is a faith that works by love. Drawn by the cords of love. And friend, this, this text asks us the question, which is it that draws me tonight? Which is it that will lead me to go to the throne of grace in private tomorrow? Which is it that will lead me to resist temptation, to turn away from worldliness, to, to, to engage in all the duties that I know I ought to be engaged in? What is it that will draw you there? Friend, if the answer to that question, though so often it will always be mixed, but if the answer to that question is predominantly the fear, the fear of judgment, friend, I just remind you here, I remind you here that Christ desires freedom for his people. Not freedom from obedience, but that filial love that induces obedience. That freedom that makes men willing to do what they ought to do. Well, friend, there's so much more here. Can I close with one word of consolation that comes directly from the text? In that first verse, we're told that Christ made the freedom of his people 
a great end, a chief end in his own labors for redemption. Well, friend, if that's the case, then, beloved, you have a Christ who desires your freedom and who desires that you would grow more and more in that freedom. And he desires that more than you desire it yourself. Beloved, if you are in Christ, it is Christ's desire. The end of his work, the the very thing that he prays that will come into consummation at the end, that his people will be drawn by love, a filial love after him. And that that servile spirit will die. So friend, we have here a reminder that Christ will not rest until that freedom is at last consummated. He will, beloved, bring it into its fullness. And for that, we should thank and praise his name. May the Lord lead us to do that for his own namesake. Amen.